Well, this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time and study in God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings of this life. Lord, thanking you for the blessings of our worship as we've sung praises to you and heard your word already and prayed together. Lord, we know all of those things are are for our good and for your glory, and we pray that they would be received well and that you would uh, bless us through them. Lord, as we come to this time of study and, and opening your word to hear what you would say to us, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, our eyes would be opened, our ears would be unstopped, that we might uh, see and behold the glory of God and might be changed by it. Father, bless me as I seek to bring your word to these, your people, that I would be strengthened and I would be able to speak in a way that you would have me to and make their hearts receptive to it. Father, that we might all be changed from one degree of glory into another, into the image of your Son. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be back in our study of the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6, getting into uh, a whole new section of the book of Romans, as I explained last week, and I'll say a little bit more about that in just a second. But last week we, uh, we... I said that we were starting to get into some deep waters when we are in the book of Romans. As you move from Romans chapter 4 to 5, you begin this transition from uh, things that are pretty basic to the gospel, things that most Christians understand pretty easily, and they form what we know as kind of the crux or the heart of the gospel message, that we are all sinners, that we cannot please God because of our sin, and that through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive Christ's righteousness. And by that uh, righteousness, we are able to be acceptable before God. And therefore, we are uh, part of the kingdom of God. And last week, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And there we saw that all of humanity is either identified with Adam in his death and sin... Or we are identified with Christ, the man of grace and life. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness and our status changes from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. So now Paul begins uh, the process of answering supposed questions that people might ask. And actually, the book of Romans is fascinating in that unlike any other uh, uh, pretty much any other book that or letter that Paul wrote, he asks and answers these hypothetical questions. So if you read any other of Paul's epistles, they are usually responses to questions that people have asked him. But in Romans, Paul is coming up with his own questions. So in a sense, Paul is wrestling himself with what the gospel means. But he also imagines other people who would hear what he says and and not really like it or have objections to it. And so he begins in chapter six to ask and answer hard questions about the gospel. At the end of the day, if it's true that we are saved by this righteousness of Christ through faith in him and not by our own works, then what does that mean for works in general? Are we to be 
morally good or can we just do whatever we want? And what does it mean that we go on sinning? If we keep sinning after we trust in Jesus, does that mean we've lost our salvation? And if we, um, if we struggle in this life and we face persecution, does that mean God doesn't like us anymore? Or it, it, what about Israel? When Israel, uh, when we see that Israel was were the people of God and they were under a covenant with God, but then God now is doing something different through faith in Jesus Christ, does that mean that it, that God just changes His mind from time to time and He doesn't keep His promises? What are we to do with the truths of the gospel that we get and we understand them in a basic way? What does that mean in the faith and practice of our daily lives? And how we understand the way that works out in reality. And so, like I said, Paul begins to answer those questions, starting with Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. So let's read that together and see Paul's answer to this, uh, this question that we might ask about the gospel message. So starting in verse 1, verse one of Romans chapter 6, God word, God's word says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Have, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For, who, uh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make, uh, make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So from this passage, we find three things that change when we come to faith in Christ. There are three ways that we change when we come to Christ. First, we have a change in identity. Second, we have a change in our nature. And third, we have a change in our will. So first, let's consider this change in identity from verses 1 through 4. So in verse 1, we find this first question that Paul imagined someone could ask. And it's stated like this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now you can imagine someone wanting to ask this question thinking, now wait a minute, Paul. 
Are you saying that I am ultimately saved totally and completely by a work of God's grace apart from good works or the law? Are you saying that um, salvation is totally of God's grace and it's not up to me at all? It's not it's not something that I can affect. And if that's so, what motivation would I have to live a holy life for God? What motivation would I have to be good if if grace abounds all the more and and covers every sin I could ever commit? Then why wouldn't I sin more so that I can bring glory to God more by the grace that he gives to me? You know, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Therefore, we're a perfect match kind of thing. You know, why wouldn't I just go on doing what I've always done instead of trying to live a holy life for God. So Paul answers this question with two spiritual truths that we have to understand that are the result of trusting in Jesus Christ. They are the result of our conversion in trusting in Christ and being changed by His Holy Spirit. The first truth is that our identity has changed. Paul says that in Christ... We have died to sin through our faith in Him. So as I explained last week in chapter 5, we are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. Our old life is gone, and now we have new life in Christ. So if I could give you just an analogy, and I'm sure your parents were like this too probably, uh, if you ever got in trouble as as a kid and it got back to your parents that that had happened, Uh, one of the things your dad might have said to you is, at least my dad said this, boy, skippers don't act like that, right? Did your parents ever tell you that? That is not the way, or maybe they pointed at another kid, and they said, you see the way that kid's acting? Skippers don't act like that. Maybe they did that. But uh, in other words, the way you act has a lot to do with the identity that you have. Your identity in Christ has a calling in and of itself. That As a a person who has been saved by Jesus Christ, you now have an identity that is with Christ. And therefore, you are motivated not to live after sin and after Adam, but to live after Christ. And this is all symbolized by an act that every Christian carries out as their first profession of faith. Paul says in verse 3 that the baptism we participate in when we trust in Jesus Christ and we profess that faith to this church, that baptism symbolizes the change that we have received. So when we pass under the water of baptism... It is as though, and in fact, I say this when I, when I do a baptism. As I put the person under the water, I say, buried with Christ in baptism. That going under the water is symbolic of our death in Christ. And then, when we come back up out of the water, it's symbolic of our resurrection to new life in Him. When we're raised up out of the water... It is symbolic of the fact that we are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. 
Oh, Christian, take heart in this truth. I know that the struggle against sin is real. And many times the temptation to sin is ever before us. There are times when we fall back into sin and Satan will immediately pounce in that moment of sin and say, aha, see, you weren't a Christian after all. You didn't deserve the grace of Jesus after all. And the shame of our sin will overwhelm us. And his goal, Satan's goal in that is to make us ineffective and to bring us to a point of despair. And in those moments of temptation and in those moments of remorse, remember that you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. Remember that your identity has changed and sin no longer has a claim in your life. It no longer has a claim over your life. Remember If you can't remember that, remember something else very real and physical that you went through. Remember your baptism. Your baptism is not meant to be a constant washing that you come back to. I know it's popular, it's become popular in our day to seek baptism again when you feel guilty or you feel remorse or you feel ineffective. But baptism isn't meant to be a continual washing. It's meant to be a symbol of the reality of your change in identity. So when you face temptation uh, or when you face the shame of your past sin that overwhelmed you, remember your baptism. Remember that you have been buried with Christ. Your old life is dead and your new life has begun in him. It points that baptism points to the fact that, yes, you may have at one time been a liar, but you are now in Christ. You may have one time been identified as a womanizer, but now you are identified with Christ. You may have at one time been identified as a gossip or a homosexual or a a tramp or whatever it might be. But now you are in Christ. Your identity has changed and therefore you are motivated by something else. And your sin does not define you. Jesus defines you. The second spiritual truth that Paul gives as an answer to this question leads me to my second point, which is a change of nature. So in verses 5 through 11, Paul teaches us that a change happens to us through faith in Christ that is not just an issue of status or identity, but is also there is actually something that really does change within us. In verse 6, he says that our old self was crucified with Christ. And as a result, we are no longer slaves to sin. Now, you can't miss what this means. Don't don't miss the importance of this. Remember, Paul has already established in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that we are all sinners and that we uh, that no one seeks after God. And in Ephesians chapter 5 of uh, chapter 2 verse 1, Paul goes so far as to say that we are dead in sin. In other words, those who are outside of Christ cannot help but sin. Now you might say, well, now wait a minute, preacher. I know some good 
unbelievers. I know some people who have never set foot in this church. They have never professed faith in Jesus, but they're good old boys. They're, they're good people. Now, when I say that someone cannot help but sin, I don't mean that they're as bad as they could be. I don't mean that they will do whatever sin comes along. What I mean is that they cannot escape the power of sin. That there are sins that they struggle with. There are sins that rule over them. And they cannot escape the power of that sin regardless of how hard they try. We see this slavery to sin all around us. All you got to do is just leave and go to Cracker Barrel after, supper, after church. And you'll, you'll, if you pay close enough attention, you'll see all this, this slavery to sin around you. We see it in the child who was abused, who now abuses his own children, all while hating his father and carrying the shame of every strike that he has administered, uh, ad, uh, administered uh, and, and feeling the guilt of it. We see it in the drugged out 18-year-old girl groomed from an early age to turn tricks for drugs, producing child after child and wanting to break that cycle, but still sinking deeper and deeper into sin. We see it in the up, upstanding businessman that everyone respects and believes is a, a great moral example in our community, but who secretly harbors bitterness and hatred towards his fellow man. So he knows with every applaud, the applause that he gets, with every pray, bit of praise for the morality that he holds to, he knows that that morality and that praise is built on a lie because he can't change the bitterness of his own heart. But when we turn to Christ, we are set free from that slavery to sin. And in its place, we receive life in Christ. Now, instead of the destruction of sin, we have the life of the Spirit. That life of the Spirit brings me to my last point, which is a change of the will. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul admonishes us to live in light of the fact that our identity and our nature has changed. He charges us that we would use our bodies as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of unrighteousness. So the word instrument there in Greek is the word hoplon. And the hoplon was a circular shield that the Roman soldier would use when he would go into battle. And for a Roman soldier, the shield or the hoplon was not just a defensive weapon. It was also an offensive weapon because they would join together in one line and they would force the enemy back and they would take the field using those shields or those hoplons to push along. And so when Paul says that our bodies are like those hoplons, like those shields, we can either use our bodies as shields to take the field for the Lord, or we can use those our bodies as shields to take the field for Satan. We can either use our bodies for unrighteousness, or we can use our bodies as instruments of righteousness. But as a Christian, what I want you to recognize, because we are in Christ... We have been set free from sin and we can no longer claim slavery to sin 
as an excuse for why we do things. Now, understand what I mean by that. When we were outside of Christ, we could not help but sin. We were slaves to sin. But in Christ, we have been set free from sin. So hear me out on this. Understand what I'm saying. A Christian cannot use the excuse, the devil made me do it. I know that's convenient. I know it feels good at the moment. But we cannot use the excuse of the devil made me do it. Because you have the Spirit within you to enable you to resist sin. So sin is not inevitable for the Christian. It is something we can choose to resist by the power of God's Spirit and the life that He gives us in Jesus Christ. So let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. If there is a sexual sin that you struggle with, many times what people will do is they will talk of that sexual sin as though they fell into it. Almost like they tripped over something and, oh, I didn't know I was going to do that. I accidentally fell into this sin. That's not how sin happens. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest about sin. You don't fall into sin. You knew you were doing it all along. And I'm not saying I'm uh, uh, unique and I'm not any different than anybody else. I know because I've done it before. And I love to use the excuse of, oops, I fell into it. The devil put a little trip right wire in front of me and I fell right into that sin. No, I knew all along that that sin was coming and I chose to continue walking towards it. And maybe the, in a, maybe the sin isn't a sexual sin. Maybe it's a sin of substance. Maybe, you know, you, you, can't, uh, you think you can't put down the bottle and you say, well, pastor, preacher, I'm addicted to it. No, you want it. You choose to take it. If you didn't buy it, you couldn't drink it. Okay? So if uh, you have freedom in Christ and you are free from the bondage of sin and Satan because of what Christ has done for you, and therefore you can choose to resist sin. You can forgive and reconcile with your enemy or your loved one or a person of a different race or a person that you work with that's offended you or whatever else. And you might say, well, it's, my, it's not my fault, it's their fault. No, it's your fault because you won't go and talk to them. And you choose not to do it. It's not something that Satan's keeping you from doing. It's not something that your own, the power of sin over you is keeping you from doing. It is your will to resist the work of the Spirit in your life as a Christian that is keeping you from do it, doing it. The Spirit is in you and is giving you the power to do it. You must choose to uh, live in light of that Spirit and walk in the freedom that Christ gives you in over sin. And when you do, you can overcome the power of sin and resist the works of Satan. So friend, sin is a slave master, plain and simple. You may feel like you're free from sin and, and you have complete control over your sin, 
But the truth is, it has control over you. If you are outside of Christ, you are under the control of sin. The only way to escape the ruin of that sin is to turn to faith in Christ. Believe that He died and rose again for you and be saved. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we have a new identity. We have a new nature and we have a new will. We are no longer slaves to sin tossed about by every temptation. We are free to live for Christ. But living for Christ is not something that we just did once and now we're done with it. Living for Christ is something that we must daily choose to do. As Christ says in Luke chapter 19 or chapter 9, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. We must choose to follow the leadership of the Spirit. We must choose to create habits that keep us from temptation. We must choose to adopt disciplines that keep us in faithful fellowship with Christ. Dying to sin and living for Christ is not an in-the-moment thing. In other words, you don't decide to resist temptation standing outside of the gentleman's club. And you don't decide to resist temptation with the 24-pack riding around in the back of your truck. You decide to resist temptation before you ever get to that point. You decide to resist temptation before your foot hits the pedal to go to that place. And you set up boundaries around your life that keep you from that. So you talk to faithful Christian brothers and sisters and say, brother, if you see me headed down the road towards that place, you get in your truck and you follow me and you come get me. Or brother, I want to meet with you once a a month and let's pray about this sin that I'm dealing with, this temptation that I'm dealing with. Or you say, uh, you know, sister, I need you, when I start to talk about somebody that I don't know the full story on, I need you to change the subject altogether and turn me in a different direction. You, you put hedges around your life that keep you from even, even starting down the road of temptation. And it's not just about what you take away, but it's also about what you fill your life with. It's also about the fact that instead of filling your life with gossip and with substances and with uh, movies that distract you from or, or, or that are full of language and obscenities and all of those things that you replace those things with things that glorify God. Things that set your mind on the things that are above. Music that brings you to a point of worship. Uh, stories that are good and moral and true. Uh, friendships that will as I said, keep you accountable and direct you in the way that you could go. Of, of church family that will walk alongside of you. Daily, or weekly worship that will keep you in the Word of God. A daily practice of reading Scripture that will remind you of the works of God in, his, in history and in the future. Those things that are things that we can do to replace the sinful habits and temptations of this world with those things that are above, 
those things that are set where Christ is. May we, can, uh, may we commit to live faithfully in light of our freedom in, in, in Christ. And may we seek to build a life that is committed fully to Him as we live in freedom that He has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of Your Gospel that gives us the freedom that we have in Christ. And Lord, we thank You for uh, the, the work of Your Spirit that sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. Lord, we are not enslaved to our sins. We do not have to keep coming back to the same sin and go through that cycle of shame and guilt and remorse over what we've done and come again over and over again to, uh, to repentance and faith. We can live in, uh, in righteousness because you have empowered us to do so. And we can overcome sin, not by our own work, not by our own will, but by the will and the power that you have given us through your spirit and through your son. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of your presence as we seek to live obediently for you and that we would be faithful in it as we leave this place. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.